Hollywood Jorby. What's up? <laughs> What's up? What's up, Rob? I'm hot. Yeah, same. I started the process of getting my California driver's license today. Nice. And I mean, when's the last, when was the, when, how long ago without revealing your age? I mean, you're in your fifties, so it must've been a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> no, when, when did wow. you first Get your license, take your test, do all that kind of stuff. Oh, right. When I turned 16, like it's the moment I was able 40 to. 40 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I grew up, you know, I grew up in this lame suburb. You know, I grew up in the the suburbs of Brockville, Ontario. So not even in Brockville, Ontario. So I lived like outside of the town. So, you know, I there's no transit. There's no anything. So the, mo- the moment I turned 16 year old, years old, I was all, I was all over that. And in fact, I failed my driving test twice. I failed it twice. The the physical, the driving test itself or the written test? The driving part. Oh goodness. Yeah. It was goodness. it was horrible. The second time I was just too I was nervous. I was too nervous. Yeah. I couldn't do it. I was sweating bullets. Well, I fucked up. What's your what's your anecdote here? So I went I went to get mine today just to transfer. And apparently you just can't do that. When I moved from Ohio to to DC, they just changed it immediately and that was fine it's like hey, here's your new driver's license you philip cho she live here okay you're good you can't apparently do that in california you have to do everything with the exception of the driving test thankfully but after i you know waited in line went to show them all my paperwork paid the paid the fee and everything took my picture then they said oh and now you have to take a written test what <laughs> i didn't know this i didn't study for this so they usher me into this room with full of people taking this touchscreen multiple choice test. Uh-oh. Rob, I was sweating bullets. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. And the questions were tough. It was California-specific things yeah. that were like, like what's, what's the penalty in California for driving away from a cop that tells you to pull over? Do you? Do you I know? Don't know. No, I, I have no idea. I didn't know. And that's useful information too. If you, in case you get into some situation, I'm going to be in. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I learned is it's really not that bad. So if, if I got the money for it, <laughs> no, 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 I, I was getting things like that wrong because I didn't know that I was going to have to take this test. So obviously didn't prepare and it's a new state for me. And I don't know some of the, fines state specific fines or penalties it was what's the what is the fine if someone in your car under 12 is not wearing a seatbelt? Mm. like and who and who gets fined i don't fucking know that off the top of my head so i'm missing these questions and about three quarters of the way through i'm thinking like please just let 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 this next question be the last and i would answer one maybe i'd get it right Another question would pop up and I am freaking out thinking, (laughs) I can't fucking fail this. What am I? I don't want to start this process all over again. And I finally like barely by one question get through and by the, by the fucking grace of God. And I was like legitimately guessing on some of them and (laughs) just by chance got some of them right. But my God, (laughs) it was, it was, it was a rough day this morning at the California DMV for me. That sounds, it's a good thing you didn't turn into like a Michael Douglas falling down kind of situation. It's like the, that was my backup plan. So it's good for everyone that I passed. But at least (laughs) if you do get in that situation, then you know the fine if you have to run away from police and everything. So you're Yeah. I mean, my, my Michael Douglas, Douglas scenario would be different if I didn't pass. I mean, I wouldn't be able to drive. Yeah. Uh, So I would just start on a bike or something, just sitting, sitting on my bike and just snap. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's good that you passed it, though. 
Yeah, it's been a while since God. I've had to do that, let me tell you. But it's been twenty years since I took my first driver's test. Yeah. So I was I was a bit rusty. Yeah. And I am forty years old. There's nothing wrong with being forty. That's all. <laughs> I mean, it's in fact cool. It's cool to be forty years old. There's and there's no reason to be ashamed of it. So well, I'm right behind you. It's okay. Let's hurry it up, old man. Uh, <laughs> I got achy knees and ankles here. Let's uh, keep this going here. The humidity really wreaks havoc with my joints. Okay. Yeah. Adam Johnson is back on the show. Very, very excited about this. We've wanted him back on for a while. Uh, he's a busy man. He's a busy yeah. guy, but we finally got him. It was it was really great. We talked about the new inspiring Gen Z candidate out of Texas, Isaiah Martin. Yep. The hollowness and generational candidate framing only. Uh, why it's important, obviously, to look at issues and substance of candidates and the danger that, quote, generational candidates can pose. We got into the upcoming government shutdown, how, yet again, social safety net programs this time the WIC program, which provides nutrition benefits, food stamps for women and infant children. That's on the chopping block, but nothing else is. And Bill Maher's comments on the writer's strike, calling the writers, the WGA's demands kooky. It was a really, really good conversation. Yeah. Always appreciate uh, the, the work that Adam does, the analysis uh, in the citations needed podcast. Uh, he mentions as well. He also writes the column on Substack. Um, Always really appreciate that uh, the, his uh, his takes and uh, we we got a lot to to get into today with him and he was it was really great stuff. You want to get to that? Well, before we get to that, Rob, we yes. got to remind people that earlier this week we talked to Jared Holt, again recurring guest, about the sentences handed down to the Proud Boys in the various January sixth cases. That is for subscribers only. If you go to insurgentspod.com, just five bucks a month, you get access to that episode, our entire back catalog of premium episodes. You get an additional episode every week for just five bucks a month. We really, really appreciate everyone's support. We have done slightly elevated asks over the past couple of weeks on social and on the show, and you all have responded and we, we greatly appreciate it. We've got a ton of new paid interns and you can keep the show going. You help Keep the show going. You are the engine of this show. So we really, really thank you and appreciate everyone for subscribing. Insurgentspod.com. Well, really, the hosts are more the engine. Like, you know. <laughs> well, you, you, gotta th- you gotta be gracious. You gotta <laughs> so just throw them a bone. Throw them a bone. No, we genuinely really do appreciate everyone that's uh, supported the show over the years. You know, going on three years here, over 200 episodes. We absolutely love to do it. And we wouldn't be able to do this show without uh, people supporting it and subscribing. As Jordan said, if you can, uh, you get an extra episode every single week. Some of the very best guests uh, of any of any podcast, uh, with I, I feel comfortable saying. Um, I, you know, I'm super proud of this show, and I'm it's so it's really amazing that people out there support the work that we do on here. So thanks so much, folks. And again, if you want to subscribe and get access to all those bonus episodes, that's insurgentspod.com. Yeah. How about we get into our conversation with Adam? Let's do it. Adam Johnson of the Citations Needed podcast and the column on Substack will be joining the show right after this. Adam, you looking? You got any sports stuff coming up? You were just talking about ESPN. Are you like a sports guy? Are you waiting for? stuff to kick off so to speak i'm very much i'm very much a sports guy i'm actually in a like lefty media fantasy football league which is my only like like uh clickish lefty oh, nice. thing i do uh max alvarez has a league so i uh i always i always finish like dead or second <laughs> to last in that but um i'm hoping i'm doing better this year i kind of took it a little more seriously this year but i don't know i, I, I always lose fantasy football i don't know why i, I think i'm too much of a homer I fall in love with players and I don't, I'm not a Yeah, I, I often end up like drafting players from like my favorite team and stuff without thinking about stats or anything yeah, like no, that. Yeah, no, I, I homered. Yeah, I got, I, yeah, I got Justin Fields, which is like probably not very smart. Anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm a sports guy. If you want to do sports, I, I can do my best uh, AM sports blowhard guy. 
we like to cover all the, I'm using, I keep using all these sports analogies, kick off. We like to cover all the bases. Yeah. I'm just, geez. Well, you're Canadian, so you're you're suspect. I wasn't sure. We do have sports here. We do have, yeah, different, various. We have, we have the weird football yeah. thing. Canadian football yeah, It's like we have football at home. <laughs> the football at home. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm an NBA guy. That's yeah. the thing. I, I, I'm i an NBA guy, yeah. and I do – I've tried to do fantasy basketball every year, and I always just end up not setting my lineup one day. That's that's too much. The basketball, the basketball, baseball is too much work. The football is like, oh, you just do it once a week. Um, but even that can get a little bit. But um, – no, I, you know, it's funny the, the Canada has like their national teams, like they have the Raptors and obviously have the Blue Jays. And, and I, and anytime I go to a baseball game and they're playing the Blue Jays, which has happened twice in my life, like, they, I guess every Canadian just like needs to go to that game. Cause it's always racked with Blue Jay fans. The weirdest thing yeah. is like they, you cannot go to a, a, Blue, a Blue Jays road game without a thousand Canadians wearing the gear. It's like they go out and it's like a pride thing. I don't know. Yeah. Even when the Raptors are playing the Warriors in the NBA finals, there was a, there was a, Raptors contingent, the Oracle before the Raptors infamously, oh. before the Raptors famously closed out Oracle Arena and ended the Warriors was, dynasty. That was a good but, series, you know. That was the, who's counting? I don't know. I remember Who even that. Remembers that. I remember the, the random <laughs> Kawhi Leonard championship, and then they just kind of went away. Although last year they they limped into the playoffs, didn't they? Or no, they lost to the. Um, yeah, last year was not good. No, they they lost, they lost in the play-in to, tournament last year. Last year was very yeah. depressing. Right. It was very to, depressing. To Miami, to Miami. Yeah, and as I've said many times, it's one of my fervent beliefs about the pandemic. With with all the various tragedies of the pandemic, I do believe the Raptors would have returned to the NBA Finals without that, which is really the ultimate, the ultimate tragedy of the the COVID nineteen pandemic, which is prevented hold, that. You're, you're, you're going to hold on to that, like the like those yep. Ast- like those Astros fans who claimed they were going to win the World Series in '94 if it wasn't for the lockout. Or the uh, I think Expos fans actually do that too. Expos, Expos, yeah, Expos fans do that too. Yeah, yeah, they were first <laughs> place, weren't they? That was like the one. Yeah. I can't talk hockey, though. I will warn you. I know nothing about hockey, even though I am in Chicago now, and I feel like I should. Neither do I. Come on, that's that's not possible. Isn't that crazy? You don't think you? you yeah, Jordan's you don't the only pick hockey it up guy. Osmosis, like kind of like how like I I claim, I, I like rope and Texas and claim I don't like country music, but I'll just randomly know the lyrics to every song. It's the kind of thing that like I just it seems just too painful. There's too much pain involved in being a regular obsessive follower when the Canadians. Because I'm in Montreal, it's a big hockey town. Obviously, when the Canadians make the playoffs, when they're okay, I will usually maybe wait around and then I'll tune in before inevitably being disappointed. But anytime you put that emotional investment into it, it just always ends in heartbreak. And hockey, honestly, is like I find it genuinely when you do get invested in it, unpleasant to watch. Like it's so stressful. Every moment just becomes painful to watch. This is a rather like boring criticism, but I, I, I don't see very well and I have a really hard time following the puck. Like I have a, I, have a, I see okay. Like I have a, I have a, I have a which is like a cornea thing. Like it's not a big deal, but I, it's like I can't, I'm looking for the puck. They got to bring back that, that electronic puck. Why don't they have that as an option? Like on your TV? I don't know. I remember that. It looked like a video game. Yeah, no, I, I like going to hockey games, though. It, it's awesome. Yeah. They're fun to attend physically, but I can't really watch it on TV. I don't I don't know what's going on. And they, they're, they're, they take it seriously here in Chicago, though. They go, I, my uncle's from here, and I first moved here. I was like, hey, where should we, you know, I just started dating my, my current wife. I said, where should I take her on a date? He goes, yeah, I can go to a Hawks game. And I was like, I don't know if that's really where she, but the way you said it was so matter of fact, <laughs> like, that's just what you do. Third date, Hawks game. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta go to Hawks game. So you're 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 based in Chicago now, and you're a Bears fan. You said I am, alas, and a White Sox fan. Speaking of desperation and being way too emotionally invested in the franchise that doesn't give a shit. 
<laughs> yesterday I found myself catching like the seventh inning of this totally pointless game against the Royals. And I was like, why am I watching this? It's just muscle memory at this point. I like, there's no stakes. Because like, sometimes, you know, when, it, when your team's like like dead in the water, you'll sort of like, okay, I'll watch to sort of see my favorite players, see, see them, see if they do okay or whatever sort of rational you And then it's like, by the end, I'm just like, this is just pointless masochism because like, this literally doesn't matter it's like you're trying to spoil some other team or like doing a spite you know like how there's when you're when the team's out of the playoffs in any sport you can kind of do a thing where in the action movies when the when the bad guy gets shot he's falling off the like ledge and he tries to squeeze off a few rounds of his uzi to see if he can pick off some good guys sure like you know you're just like okay can we, can we get this team out of the playoff contention it's like this small little petty <laughs> victory guy before you go. and then you realize how futile and petty that is like it doesn't I mean, none of it matters. Yeah. Right? It's all pointless, but like it's extra, extra yeah. pointless. Anyway, so then I quietly watch the <laughs> Cubs, but I'm not, I'm strictly speaking, not allowed to root for them, but I'm not like a Cubs hater. Um, I'm not one of those people, but I do, I do, I do kind of catch them every now and then in terms of. Do you have any, do you have any uh, thoughts or opinions on the, the deep dish scene in Chicago? And as people have very strong feelings about Lou Malnati's and Giordano's, I'm more of a Pacquads guy. Well, about two years ago, I got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which is like the genetic form. And um, it basically makes it so you can you like if I ate a deep dish now, I would die. Like it would literally kill That's not me. good. Um, you don't want that. No. Unless I injected like like 15 milliliters of insulin directly into my eyeball. Um, <laughs> like 20 grand worth of insulin. <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. I, I just, yeah, do free base insulin for a week and then maybe, um, I, I, so I haven't had it in a while, which is what I'm, which is what I'm saying. Um, your question's ableist. No, um, I had a, I had a, I will say though that I like deep dish. Like it, obviously it tastes very good. It's very buttery, very rich, but it's like, it's not, um, what's that line from, you know, succession where, where, uh, where Brian Cox says you're not serious people. It's not a serious food, right? It's sort of, it's a gimmick dish. It's what you have when you have people from out of town. It's really good, but they're like 5,000 calories. I mean, no one can reasonably expect to eat that even by normal standards of pizza. The real Chicago pizza is like Detroit style pizza. I think it's what most people like you go to have a social gathering, you order Detroit style. Like no one sits around ordering deep dish. It's too unserious. It's too sweet. It's too much of a gimmick, but obviously it's very good. You know, very, it's very, um, uh, delicious and it's all right but the, the sort of ontological the, the eternally ontological debate about whether or not it's pizza or not I, I would say no not by any meaningful definition of the term in terms of like it's two o'clock in the morning i'm hungover i'm gonna grab a slice you're not gonna grab a slice of pizza like not really and if you do you yeah. probably need some kind of intervention um because you're probably trying to hurt yourself you're trying to harm yourself so what is it like a, it's like a is like a casserole in a bread bowl basically or what yeah, but I feel what like would maybe, that be? maybe that trivializes how good it is. I don't want to, I don't diminish that it is good. It's just not like a thing you, okay, you can okay. reasonably eat. Even if you're not, even if you're like, you know, 21 years old, you can eat whatever you want. Like, no, I, I just, you're not going to sit around eating deep dish. It's just like ridiculous. You feel like you okay. are wearing a rucksack after you eat it. It's just, it's ridiculous. Like, it's so heavy. <laughs> it's not a reasonable food. It's not a, it's not a serious food. Okay. Have you had it, Rob? I think I got it. I haven't. No, I'm kind of intrigued. Well, you know, they sell Giorianos, I think, or whatever it's called. They sell, like, the Frozens and Luminati. If they sell the Frozens, you can have shipped to you. And I did this for a friend once. And I, and I got to say, it's, uh, they hold pretty well. You can bake them in your, in your oven, and it actually kind of huh. works. And they're, uh, they're quite good. It's, not, it's like an occasion thing. That's just what I need. I need to order some, some frozen deep dish. It's a special. It's like, oh, my, 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 my relatives from out of town. I'm all happy. Yeah. Once every okay. six month type situation. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds about right. Well, Adam, we're, we're happy to have you back. It's been a while. We've wanted to have you on uh, for a while now. The theme of the show is typically, you know, news that doesn't really make you feel great. Okay. Well, that's, that's my, that's my specialty. Exactly. But we <laughs> you know we're, 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 we're breaking free of that mold this week with you here because there is something to celebrate. And I know you're going to have a lot of great commentary on it. And that is something we can all be inspired by. And that is the new Gen Z candidate out of Texas, Isaiah yes. Martin. He raised $130,000 for his campaign in the first 24 hours. How psyched are you that we could have another Gen Z member of Congress? <laughs> um, yeah, so I've been I've been. I've been I've had a bit of a hobby horse for a while now. God, I'd say like since I started writing about the 
I'm actually going to write an, an article. I realized I hadn't actually written an article on it. I'd done an, we had done one episode of the podcast on it like five years ago. And we did a somewhat of a version of it where we basically said that like the geriatric discourse can be kind of a bit of a ideological cul-de-sac, very superficial, um, with an understanding that like, yeah, it's probably not a good idea that people are 98 years old and decaying while in Congress, that that's more of an issue of decaying than age per se. Um, and that some of that discourse can kind of veer into ageism, which is bad, not insofar, not only insofar that it's like a, a kind of glib form of discrimination, but also I think obscures the real issue, which has to do with like one of the reasons why people in Congress are disproportionately so old compared to 50 years ago is because people who, who gravitate towards the center, as it were, gravitate towards the money of you know, corporate donors, the weapons industry, Wall Street, um, and gravitate towards APAC, et cetera, that they are more likely to survive getting primaried and survive challenges because, and that's why they end up having more conservative politics, that the kind of causation is a little backwards with the, with the corollary, the obvious corollary being that just because someone's young does not mean they're going to have good politics. Um, and you saw this with, 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 with Pete Buttigieg's campaign you know, he, he uh, for the first six months, solicited the most billionaire donors. So I think at one point he had something like 60 billionaire donors, which is a lot. Um, dwarfing Wine cave. Yeah. Um, and you saw this, like any kind of dead-eyed careerist Buttigieg clone who would come up with him or behind him. Uh, and again, we Clinton was the young, you know, fresh-faced guy. Tony Blair was the young, fresh. But these are guys that invented the you know, third-way politics of the 90s. And so you see this as kind of a siren song of like, oh, they're young, therefore they're progressive. And it's and it's a it's very much Pepsi marketing generation next. It's it's extremely superficial. It doesn't really because when you begin to say, okay, well, they can be young, but they have to have good politics. Or, you know, they have to be, they have to, you know, there's an issue of diversity, racial diversity, LGBTQ, all these vectors that are of, of oppression, which uh, class uh, are which are very important. Once you sort of qualify for all that. Then after you're on to like the fifth or sixth criteria and you say, oh, they're also young, then maybe that's useful or maybe that's relevant. But once you've qualified it to that extent, um, it's then you realize how kind of pointless it is and how much, how, much, how, mu how much a candidate with nothing really to say or has no real kind of uh, moral vision or, or, or big politics will necessarily lean on this kind of generational discourse because, again, it's – it sounds people, you know, again, there, there is a, there is a form of, and I don't want to throw out the, I, I don't want to throw out the isms too much, but there is a, there is a cultural isms. We, we really don't like old people. They, you know, they're old and they're lame and they're not sexy and <laughs> that which is younger and fresher and, you know, is better generally, right. This is the kind of framework um, that a lot of marketing has uh, that which is old is lame. -o, that which is young is by definition good or preferable uh, you know, an actress turns 30, she's not going to get any callbacks, um, especially towards women, obviously, that becomes more prof more profound. Um, and it's hard not to see a lot of that kind of um, marketing fluff kind of find its way into politics. And so when someone says, oh, I'm a Gen, Gen Z candidate running for Congress, I'm like, I don't care. I mean, that doesn't really matter to me. Um, again, would you? It, it, what are your politics? What do you stand? And if your first bill, you're you have on your webpage that you're going to you're going to uh, promote and, and co-sponsor is a friendly alliance with the apartheid regime of Israel. I mean, I don't really care if you're 14 or 114. It doesn't really matter to me. And, and I do think that many on the left, especially with the rise of people like Ocasio-Cortez, have have said, you know, they've fallen into that trap and you say, well, Ocasio-Cortez is, is good because her politics are good. <laughs> Whether or not she's you know young is not really that relevant. Again, I think maybe it makes you more savvy to certain things, um, but not by definition, certainly. Um, as you know, uh, and I and you see that with this with all these kind of um, Buttigieg clones. And again, they're just he, he's doing the playbook of Obama. Obama was young, Clinton young, and uh, I, I I think that that could be uh, a bit of a a trap for people who maybe fall into that. Cause again, on some superficial level, we say, well, young people, they're going to be more impacted by climate change. And that's true. But again, if I'm, if they're taking $50,000 in PAC money from fossil fuel companies, what difference does it make? Um, so I really think you need to judge candidates based on their platform and what and the, their, their pedigree in terms of their ideological pedigree, where they come from, 
whether or not they have the backing of unions, you know, their position on issues like, you know, on foreign policy, whatever it has you, rather than this kind of Pepsi marketing, young is good, um, claptrap, which, you know, ever, people engage in way too often, in my opinion. Yeah, there seems to be this kind of notion that like, um, oh, you know, once the once this last crop of old boomers, these decrepit old dinosaurs die off, then there's going to be this kind of young, progressive a, generation to replace them. Not, not, not a thing, especially because the same, the same, the same sources of funding are the problem. The same power dynamics are the problem. Yeah, and you might say that, like, yeah, I think you touched on this, but you might, you could say that, like, maybe the younger generation might not have some of the like extreme reactionary views of some of these like uh older types but i don't even know if that's true there's yeah. a ton of these trump 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 clone young republicans who, who yeah. won congress uh some of whom later lost but i mean a lot of these extremely right-wing uh up-and-coming trump clones and even some of the people who came up in 2010 with the tea party they were under the age of 45 so i mean you know, I don't, I don't really know where that, where that gets you. Cause again, once you start qualifying for things like ideology and diversity, things that I think do actually matter, then, then what's left is like, well, okay, then it's kind of maybe a kicker card, I guess, cause they will be around longer, but I don't, even then it kind of veers into, is that just like a, a form of, of age discrimination? Are you saying like, um, and obviously it can work both ways. Yeah. And you point about, you talk about climate change as well as the fact that younger generations are going to be around to physically like experience the effects of that. But when you look at uh, Isaiah Martin's campaign platform, like he doesn't even, he barely even mentions it. Which he doesn't, is, he so, doesn't have an issues page right now. It's gone. Yeah. Yeah. Cause again, it's like cool. these, the idea that like people are going to be meaningful. It's just, I'm motivated. young. That's pretty much it. Yeah, and then sort of things that well, it's 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 things that rich donors like. Rich donors like, you know, sort of generic, save democracy stuff. Which some of that's fine, you know, some of that's good. Um, generic um, gun control stuff, again, fine. But also kind of what you do when you really want to look like you're some you know Gen Z guy who doesn't really. Uh, and then you throw in your kind of uh, boilerplate. Um, uh, you know, we need to strengthen ties with Israel stuff. And it, it's all sort of generic. And what the, you know, what they would say in his defense, they'd say, well, I'm running in Texas. But then again, this is a plus 25 <laughs> Democratic uh, district. This is, we're not talking about, um, you know, a, a red district. So then that raises the question of why. Um, and, and, and again, I think it's, um, it's it's this idea that that being young is somehow meaningful, and it's just it's uh, it's not. I don't know. Yeah, I think the the lack of a clearly articulated issues page or anything really substantive or in depth on anything more than like this electoralism or protecting democracy, like you say, his his launch ad was just about a polling place at his college campus not being there anymore. Yeah. That was like the first and most important thing that he talked about. It's like his time as like student government president or something, which uh, that's good. Yeah, you we want more access to voting locations, especially in in cities. But that's not the most pressing issue on most voters' minds, especially well, not nationally. It, it, it is exploiting a kind of a, a generic. It's demagoguing a very generic sentiment, which is that the olds are crusty and lame, and young people are good, and it, it is a form of anti politics. But it is it it is popular. People respond to it because people respond to superficial bullshit i don't know um but it is you know it's effective i just i i'm i'm, I'm on the vanguard of the people saying like don't fall for that because again you'll just get a bunch of mckinsey and company guys that did their six months in afghanistan who are the sort of careerists who are really kind of are resume builders to get to x y and z who have no real who have no ideological commitments have no history in movements have no history in any kind of activism or labor they're kind of just vehicles for their own career and money interest. Yeah, that's the thing. When you take away that issues page and you don't offer anything up, that means there's very little room for scrutiny from people. So they're going to try to make him as generic and basic as possible for as long as possible until maybe maybe they need to offer up if they have a you know a challenge in the primary. Well, remember when people tried to pin down Pete Buttigieg's position on Medicare for All and it was like they had to bring in a waterboard expert to get it out of him? <laughs> until finally he just until finally he just faked he just gave up on the ruse and was like, nah, I don't support Medicare for all. I support a what do you say, Medicare for all who can who want it was the it's like that's not how rights work. You can't have you can't have qualified 
because then you still have a private healthcare insurance company. And then they all faked like they supported a public option, but the second that you know the, the primary is over, they just stopped talking about that and gave up on that. that was, yeah. That was never since I think Biden, Biden campaigned on that as well. Yeah, no, nobody believed it. It's sort of like when, when Hillary Clinton campaigned uh, opposing the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and even the New York Times was like, Hillary Clinton opposes it, and then in parentheses was like, but no one really believes she does. It's sort of this campaign thing. Because <laughs> uh, that would be totally in opposition to decades of, 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 of history. Like, no one really thought. Because when they asked, I will say, to Biden's credit, he, when they asked him during the primary, they're like, you have to make a distinction between compromises because of Republican opposition and compromises because you have an ideological commitment to, to compromise because you genuinely are a centrist on an ideological level, right? This is kind of the back and forth you gave with all of the, the Democratic partisans. They'll say, oh, well, Democrats had to compromise because they didn't have the votes or whatever. And so the, the, this reporter asked Biden in 2019, said, okay, you have the votes, single-payer health care is on your desk. Do you sign it? And he says, no, I don't think we can afford it. I don't know how we pay for it. And it's like, finally, someone who's not doing the fake, like, I would be a radical socialist, but those, you know, darn tootin' Republicans got in my way again, you know, sort of the <laughs> Scooby-Doo, if it wasn't for those evil Republicans. And it's like, finally, he's like being honest. He's saying, I, no, of course not. I don't believe in national health care. Uh, I'm a capitalist, and I believe, you know, we should have a healthcare industry company and it's like, or in, industry. And it's like, okay, well, then that, that at least clarifies where you stand. It's not, it's not this kind of constant, like, you know, I would have been a, a, a radical socialist if it wasn't for those pesky Republican kids who got, who got who thwarted me yet again. Well, though, but I think we got to give him credit because, you know, he campaigned on being able to bring people together and working with Republicans. And that's exactly why his first term has been such a string of nonstop successes when he kept working with Republicans to pass all these great pieces of the legislation that helped people across the, the nation. So like we had to do Obamacare because Republicans would only vote for whatever. You can only get the 51 votes or whatever. And it's like, it's refreshing to see that like, no, it's actually not. A, the limitation is not the, the conservative party. It's the ideological commitments of the centrist of the democratic party. It's, it's a rare kind of insight into that. So it was, it was, it was nice. Um, but yeah, anyway. I mean, to, to what Rob was saying, like, we were sold. I mean, we didn't buy it, but voters were sold on the Biden approach to governance, which is reaching across the aisle. His long tenure in Congress would make him the the expert and the person for the job who could make things happen, get things through Congress and get Republicans to work with him because that's what he's done his entire career. Well, we're facing a government shutdown. We have another budget battle coming up. And uh, the Washington Post reported the other day, the Biden administration is seeking $1.4 billion in emergency funding as high food costs imperil a federal program that provides healthy food for women, infants, and young children. But in response, Republicans would like to cut the WIC program, Women and Infant, Infant Children program, because we have to, we have to deal with this. We have to deal with our budget. We have to deal with our, our deficit and our debt. Right. We're, so, we're, so, we're suddenly concerned with the deficit, yeah. Yeah. It's always – they don't care when they're spending you know, billions and hundreds of billions on the military. They don't care if they're you know, funneling cash into pet projects that people in their district or their donors benefit from. Don't forget the Trump, the Trump tax breaks, which by the way, every single austerity Tea Party – person voted for but yes yeah it's, it's always supplemental nutrition it's always social safety net programs that's the strain on the budget that we have to deal with in moments like this have you been following this fight adam what's your what's your take on it i mean yeah i have um we always knew it would be austerity o'clock after the covid kind of quasi-social welfare state um which has been sunsetted without fanfare or really any kind of sustained media coverage outside of maybe Jeff Stein at the Washington Post. Nobody really covers covered those those sunsettings. Occasionally, you get an article in you know, you know, the Kaiser Family Foundation blog, or you get yeah. a, a you know coverage here and there about about navigating the new Byzantine uh, uh, you know Medicaid. Uh, you were going to disenroll and have to re-enroll these complicated things. But generally, you know, I remember during the the BBB, the Build Back Better bill fight, that was I think a lot of quite frankly, I thought was a lot of pantomime. I don't really think. The White House didn't really use their bully pulpit to push for most of that stuff. It was, uh, according to you know most news outlets, a, a progressive wish list. Progressives fought for it. White House sort of yawned their way through it. I think he did two eat scene in town halls and kind of. It was not you know he so they sort of led by saying look we're going to compromise it's going to go down from five five trillion to three trillion until eventually it became this zombie version in the IRA the the uh, Inflation Reduction Act which had a lot of 
handouts, a lot of corporate tax breaks, some of which I don't really have a problem with, but a lot of the kind of progressive rights-based, positive rights, social safety nets, you know, giving dental to seniors, uh, expanding Medicare, uh, lowering the Medicare age, God forbid, all that kind of stuff, uh, funding uh, uh, junior college and community colleges, funding, uh, uh, expanding, of course, the child tax credit, which then they got rid of. Um, They didn't really fight for that. Pretty much all the COVID welfare, um, you know, UI stimulus, uh, eviction moratoriums, um, the Medicare expansion, SNAP expansion, um, all that wasn't, that was, that was kind of a bipartisan death. Um, with one exception, I think it's fair to say the child tax credit, the White House kind of fought for, um, I know Democrats in Congress fought for that. And that was kind of DOA because of, um, mansions and mansions belief that the, that the, uh, that the lazy workers would live high on the hog of the child tax credit. Yeah. Um, and for not working spending the his- child tax credit money on drugs and stuff. Yeah, and not work on in his family's uh, coal coal mine sweatshops, um, but yeah, and that's kind of I think where a lot of the neurosis around Biden's poll numbers has been. In my, I don't, you know, I'm sort of guessing, but I think some of the cause of that is this idea that we did have a, you know, when he came into office, there was a there was this kind of quiet, unspoken welfare state brought about by the pandemic, and because the pandemic is quote unquote over, then it was sort of unceremoniously sunsetted, even though it, would, it sort of reduced poverty. Uh, by quite a bit, reduced child poverty by quite a bit. Um, but it was seen as, you know, in the White House's defense, they would say, well, basically, capital was holding Biden hostage by inflation, uh, DBA corporate uh, uh, or capital strike, effectively, I think, a kind of a d- designed inflation, which was largely driven by corporate profits, but they blamed on things like it's always social spending that causes the inflation, and yeah. not well, the only kind, only certain, only certain kind, right? Yeah, no, no, military spending doesn't cause inflation, but yeah, yeah, uh, of course, spending on WIC does. Um, and then they, and then that kind of, um, you know, that kind of went away, and then it was back, to, you know, and it was then they trumped for this tight labor market, which of course is tight in part because if you don't eat, if you don't work, you die, um, and. I think that, especially for that year, as you know, as traumatic as a lot of the pandemic was, is obviously tons of people died. Uh, but there was there was this kind of oh well, you can work um, a little less and make more. You can not work at all and still, in some cases, make you know twelve hundred, thirteen hundred dollars a week uh, if you combine various forms of of aid. Um, and people kind of had a taste of that, especially people in traditionally precarious and dangerous jobs, service industry. Um, retail and that that sort yeah. of had to go away. Then we had the, then we had the, the inflation bullshit, and then it was the summer of labor discipline. Uh, then we kind of did a two point again. I think uh, again in the White House's defense, I think they they have done a kind of combination of go back to work, you bum, along with having a softer landing than a lot of capital wanted in terms of. Um, some welfare here and there. Uh, obviously, the NLRB is much improved. Things like things like that. Labor is, has had better relations than they have would have had under Trump. So I'm trying to I'm trying to be fair here, but I, I do think it was like we're definitely not going to do a welfare approach to reducing to helping the poor. We're going to do a go back to work because the, the assumption being is that that was the primary mechanism to quote unquote fight inflation um, and go back to quote unquote normal. And then you saw, you know, August of 2021, I remember when they got rid of uh, the eviction moratorium for a few dozen states, and then they got rid of unemployment, enhanced unemployment, which had, which had reduced poverty um, by, by a significant amount in a lot of places. I remember thinking, like, shouldn't we care about this? Isn't this bad? Shouldn't the media report on it? You know, no New York Times editorial, no Washington Post editorial, no mention of the Sunday news shows, no public debate, no late night, you know, whatever news programs, no mention of any of it. It kind of just went away. And and here you had a um, a very finite example of, of how you can reduce poverty, which is, you know, giving poor people money. It's uh, <laughs> how you yeah. reduce. I can show I can show you a, a terabyte of studies, but it's not going to matter. Uh, yeah, it turns out if you actually give poor people money and you redistribute wealth from the rich to the poor, you can meaningfully put a dent in poverty. In America, the United States, especially among quote-unquote developed nations, has, has a lot of poverty, has a lot of extreme poverty. And also those people will spend that money rather than sticking it in offshore tax havens and things like that, which actually yeah. is good for the mythical small business owner <laughs> and, and that kind of stuff. 
No, it, it was, and that's why, and that's why some some in the kind of initially, like even even austerity, conservative austerity scolds like the P. Peterson Foundation were not opposed to UI. Of course, they that was that lasted about ten minutes, but initially it was like, well, this is a way to get the economy keep the economy going. Uh, when people obviously you have to shut down certain economic economic activity because of because of a deadly virus. This is coming at a time where food prices nationally are much higher than they were a couple of years ago and certainly several years ago. Despite all of this messaging that we're seeing from economists, from the Biden administration, from pundits about how great and strong and vibrant the economy is, when you look at individual circumstances, when you look at how that materializes for working people or people who rely on programs like WIC to make ends meet, it might be good in aggregate, in macro terms, and especially for businesses in corporate America, but it's it's brutal. It's it's extremely difficult. And all of these things that might be strength indicators are still compounding these problems for working people, whether it's higher bills or higher grocery costs, higher rents or mortgages, all of these things, it's making it different more and more difficult for people to stretch their dollar. So when you have something like this, it's just at a fundamental and base level, and I know I'm not saying anything especially relevatory here, but it's just extremely cruel when this program really isn't that robust. Just in the past two years, the enrollment has only increased by half a million people. Like six and a half million people use WIC. It's not that big of a program. But zeroing in on this really just, it, it, it speaks to that, this kind of kicking them when they're down sentiment we see from Republicans. And it also, not that they were ever people of their word, but they were supposed to sidestep this problem through some deal that Biden and McCarthy brokered a few months ago. And then, you know, House Republicans were like, actually, no, we're just going to we're going to threaten to shut down the government anyway. Well, yeah, it's part of a broader regime of, of continuing to discipline labor, because even though unemployment has gone down, um, labor is still too powerful in certain sectors, especially things like agriculture, retail, restaurants. And this is why they are this is why mostly conservatives, although some Democrats and some Democratic governors pushed to lower um, this, the, the, the lower the threshold of child labor laws. Uh, they tried to push the elderly back to work. Um, I think they even gave it a sexy term in Forbes magazine called unretirement, kind of a fun way for grandma to have to go back to work. Um, and because you want to increase the labor pool to reduce the power of labor, you want more people working so they can be more fluid, more precarious, more fireable. And demand, therefore, demand less wages, keep wages down. Um, and you saw this as far as the macro versus kind of, you know, when they pull people, how is your economic condition doing? It's, it's in some ways worse. It really depends on when you cut it off. When you measure from 2020 relative to 2020 to 2023, it's like slightly better. When you say 2021 to 2023, it's, it's actually much worse. Um, and I think when people talk about the like, why, you know, why does Biden get no credit for the strong economy? It's kind of because again, it's we're yeah, what a year out from the election, and we're we're in, we're in, we're into the you know rally the troops, everyone get in line phase, which is always beyond tedious. I think we're I think people are talking about two different things, which is relative. Seems like it starts to, earlier every election cycle. It really does. It's like pumpkin spice latte. I feel like they're starting <laughs> in July. Um, it is. It is. There's two things people are talking about, which are actually talking totally different, which is. Is Biden better than Trump in relative terms or better than an alternative or counterfactual Trump presidency had he won in 2020? Again, yeah, I think that's probably fair to say that's that's manifestly correct, given the you know, he would have cut taxes by another trillion dollars or whatever. But you can't keep just comparing things to some other Republican alternative in people's minds. And also, there's a there's a second thing, a parallel thing that we're talking about, which is these existential problems that have plagued the working and middle classes in this country for decades. Which is the increase in home, you know, home home ownership, the increase or in prices, the um, the the increase in homelessness, which has skyrocketed in the last three years. The increase, the increase in which is of course about labor disciplining. You have to have precarious uh, bottom rung of the labor class to let people know, you know, to get in line. Uh, you have things like um, the 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 you know sixty or twenty million some odd people who have no health care. You have the eighty. Five, depending on what number you believe in, 65 to 85 million that were underinsured. Um, you have these evergreen problems. You have a, a relatively high amount of poverty. 
the, the uh, life expectancy has gone down uh, two and a half, three years in the last since COVID. Um, it is actually where it was in 1999. So where you see life expectancy tracking down, you have deaths of despair. You have you have obviously people still fentanyl, opioid. You have all these kind of existential problems, which I think ideologically are born from inequality. They're fundamentally a, a, an erosion of social trust, as I think most crime is, most, most of the economic crime, quote unquote. Um, it is brought about by inequality. It is brought about by deliberate choice of extreme poverty. Um, and people see that and they're frustrated. So even if someone is technically kind of getting by and has a job, they, they see their friends and family around them. They see more homeless people on their way to work. They see people struggling. And they're, they wake up in the middle of the night at 2 o'clock where I could be next. That if I lose my job or if I have a catastrophic health care event, um, that I could be on the, you know, in the soup kitchen line, as it were. And that psychological wear and tear builds up over time. And when you vote for the party who's supposed to radically change that, and they don't, and they simply say, like, look, unemployment's at 3.2%. Isn't that great, you fucking idiot? I think it makes some people frustrated um, because those existential issues are not supposed to be solved by Republicans. We know they're evil. We know they work for the rich. Uh, again, Trump's somewhat blathering faux class politics aside – Whereas Democrats, we have to wait four years and then eight years for any kind of existential change to things like healthcare, things like extreme poverty, um, things like the, the price of education, the price of college, the price of housing. There's no radical solution to any of this. It's just tinkering here and there. And again, is the tinkering better than Republicans? Yeah, I, obviously. I don't think anyone really disputes that credibly. Um, but it's, 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 there's still people who suffer. You, know, you still have high rates of childhood poverty. You still have high rates... Um, obviously, of of, of 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 homelessness in this country, and, and people who are, uh, I think, one poll found that uh, from last year, done by the uh, done by the uh, a grocery store union, I think it was one of the SEIU chapters, that one in seven Kroger employees are, are experienced homeless in the last year, um, and this was prior. Uh, this was before and after COVID. So you have these kind of this this steady state of of anti povertyness in this country and how hard it is to be poor. One of the things that was trying to be addressed by things like Occupy Wall Street and the Bernie Sanders campaign um, that there was this we were going to have a vision of more justice. We're going to have a vision of greater equality. We're going to have a vision of of actually making sure that people are not one uh, one uh, healthcare episode away from bankruptcy that they could afford things like a house, they could afford things like college, that these were things that the government could help provide. Um, and instead, you got, you know, four more years of, of tinkering. You didn't have the kind of radical neoliberalism of, say, Clinton or Obama, right? It's not like Biden's going around trying to push another TPP or NAFTA. Um, and again, I think the labor relations have been have been better in relative terms, but the, but the existential rot of, of mon- much of the problems in this country are still there. And Biden is a is a caretaker. He's there to kind of hold the ship together. There's no ambition. There's no grand plan. Um, and I think there's a lot of people who want that and need that and cry out for that, at least in some way, some form of politics that represents that. Um, and I don't think that really inspires people. And so you see a thing that, you know, you see blacks and Latinos moving out of the D column into the undecided, really the kind of non-voter column. That's true for, I think, poor people in general. You see this kind of cynicism set in where you say, okay, well, you know, I voted for Biden and we got nothing in my life really fundamentally changed. Obviously, it's kind of hard to, to measure those things because there was a once in a hundred year pandemic. So it's in, in some ways, it's, there's not, it's hard to do an A-B test with such an extraordinary event uh, unfolding. Um, but I do think the existential issues that, that, did, that did give rise to things like Sanders and did create the, the primordial conditions for a Trump to merge are still there. And all, all Biden has done, I mean, sort of by his own admission, I don't even think he would really dispute this, is to sort of plug the holes for now and keep the status quo where it is. Um, and that's just not a form of politics that I think that, – that is a form of politics where you can kind of squeak out an 80,000-vote win every four years. And, and, and obviously, especially with the specter of – and the ridiculousness and the, and the raw criminality of Trump, you can especially do that. But it's not going to give you rosy. It's not going to get people too excited about things uh, because those those fundamental flaws in our system, which again leftists have been reeling about since there's been leftists in the United States, are still there. Um, I mean, look at all the post George Floyd reforms. Like, what what did we get? We got a couple of streets renamed. Nothing changed. And they, they 2020 the George Floyd uh, they 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 attempted to rally that and to and to take that energy of the protest of 2020 and turn it into the sort of 
chum for an election, and they did nothing with that. They did nothing. What, they banned chokeholds for the 40th time? Cops are killing more people in America than they were previously. Yeah, no, The Guardian had an article. And yeah, they are. It's, it's the highest number was 2022. And so, like, okay, well, then nothing changes. So why bother? Why why go out and vote? And then I, would, I, don't, I don't endorse that, I, that idea because I, I feel like that is kind of um, – basically a kind of Republican voter suppression talking point, but I, it's, I understand it. I, I, I get it. And, it, and it's very common. Um, and this is why Republicans traffic in the politics of, of nihilism. They traffic in the politics of, of taking these kind of confused independent voters and, and picking them off because they don't need them to vote for them. They just need them not to vote Democrat, right? Um, and they say things like, oh, we have money for Ukraine, but not South Chicago. And of course, they don't want to give money to South Chicago. <laughs> And the only reason yeah. they don't, and they, and they don't want to take money off from the Pentagon, just this one particular war, because they it's coded as liberal and, and woke or whatever. Um, so again, it's incoherent, but it does it speaks to a kind of general idea that yeah, it's true. Like we we really have money for this, but not for not me, uh, or or this you know poor Appalachian town. Or I think for a while they acted like they cared about Maui, Hawaii. Remember that? And then that talking point yeah. kind of fell out of favor. Um, and so that so that lack of robust class politics, that, that lack of a robust economic vision of justice necessarily leaves you open to that kind of nihilism because you can't counter it with anything other than, well, we're just going to kind of keep things at bay and make sure it's not this country is not run by Nazis. And that's good. Uh, but it's not a very romantic vision of politics. It's not going to it's not going to get asses in the seats. As it were, it doesn't inspire people to either vote, but it certainly doesn't inspire people to like get out and knock on doors and getting excited and support a big program and get people involved in that. You know, I saw a point you were making the other day to go back to the the COVID benefits being rolled back, and you you met you hit on like how the media just completely ignored that and why that is, and that's one of the things that I really enjoy about your work is kind of breaking down, uh, you know the media's role in these kinds of things. And um, I thought it was really interesting. I think you were talking about how the reason that there was no big uh, event in the media where they talked about this or there was any debates or opinion pieces was because it was bipartisan. And that's the media only functions when there's some kind of a debate between liberals and conservatives, then they can report on that. But because these rolling back, these kind of like modest welfare state that had been erected uh, under COVID was just this completely bipartisan phenomenon, the media just completely ignored it. Yeah, I mean that's true. Um, I think that's kind of interesting. Major issue. I mean, it's because there, there isn't what drives the conversation is bipartisanship, and if something is bipartisan consensus, it's therefore objectively good. Yeah. Um, and you know, Biden had the had the unfortunate, or or as you see, fortunate task of gutting that social welfare state, that kind of ad hoc social welfare state that emerged in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, and you know. That was because of the inflation narrative, which was Democrats viewed as destroying their political hopes and also an ideological commitment to just going back to the kind of capitalist system, right? Um, you know, Nancy Pelosi, we are capitalists, was her, was her motto. Um, I think that that, that that was bipartisan consensus, that, that you couldn't have a system where people were getting $600 a week to not work. I mean, this is, this is the party and Biden support. This is the welfare reform party. This is the party that embraces the fundamental premise that the bottom rung must live in fear. They can't, we cannot have a floor that allows you to be comfortable. We'll have a, a, a complex web of, of stuff for children and maybe women with children because we don't want to look like Dickensian monsters. But ultimately, if you're "quote unquote" able-bodied and able to, you have to work or you have to die. Uh, regardless of your age, by the way, you want to. My grandfather who was work, working in Uber until he was in his late eighties. I mean, this is um, this is what this is the way the country functions. It's how you keep labor costs down. It's how you keep inequality where it is. Uh, and so um, that that was bipartisan consensus that the, that 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 the Chamber of Commerce crowd had spoken. And they wouldn't even give you child tax credit. That they sort of had been decided, and they were going to keep jacking up prices until Democrats fell in line. Not to sort of totally absolve them of their responsibility, but I mean, the inflation narrative leading up to the twenty twenty elections was everywhere, and it was real, and it was basically a tax on the poor. Uh, it was an eight percent annual tax on poor people. It was an it was a, it was a decrease in wages by eight percent um, over I think two and a half years, something like twenty percent, and so. 
there's, I mean, how are you going to really combat that unless you, I think they even tried, I think they even threw out some like populist claims about corporate greed, because again, the, the, the Biden administration has always kind of been a little bit confused on how they were going to message that. Um, but that's not something you can really take on, especially if you don't have someone in, in power who has like a, the ability or willingness to do that uh, or the ideological priors to do that. And so, you know, it was time when th- things are bipartisan and they're viewed as sort of universally true, then there's no media coverage because the partisan narratives drive the Sunday morning talk shows, they drive the editorial boards. And while those don't have a direct influence, most people don't consume those, they consume things downstream from that. And that's what determines the the thing we talk about that week. Uh, that's And I remember when they were cutting something like, I want to say it was the eviction moratorium for something like 100 million, you know, I want to say it was 100 states that covered 100 million people, but I think something like 20 million people. It just happened, and no one. I mean, there was one report in the Washington Post, and one report, and maybe the New York Times would mention it, but there was no debate. It just went away. Um, and especially when you want to cut things for poor people, and it's bipartisan, and the poor people don't have a lobby, they don't have a representative who can call up the media outlets and spin it for this or that. So it just goes away, and it's totally unceremonious. And it's COVID's over. Take off your mask and get back to work. There's one other group of people that are also really struggling. And before we let you go, because we know you're you're tight on time, we have to get your thoughts on this. Uh, but that group of people is the studio and media executives. But thankfully, they do have a champion in the media, <laughs> you know, lifting them up, Hero is fighting for them. And that's Bill Maher, who this week called screenwriters the demands that they're making in the contract negotiations process. Uh, Kuki says they are not owed a living and at one point called for California Governor Gavin Newsom to step in and end the strike. Did you see, uh, <laughs> which the look on your face, I also share your confusion oh, yeah. on how he could do that, but. Well, he could, he could do the, the uh, Colorado 1914, uh, bring in the National Guard to start mowing, mowing down the screenwriters for Netflix. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah. I mean, Bill Maher, whatever, his whole shtick is, I'm going to take on these sacred cows, and it's just like, I hate poor people and trans people. And that's the thing. And, 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 and <laughs> yeah. what, if, what if race science was real? Aren't I edgy? He's been doing this, he's been doing this bullshit routine for... Uh, you know, 20 years. So, I mean, he's been, you know, I, we don't want to say it, but aren't, isn't George Bush's war good? I mean, it's like, whoa, can you say that? Is that fucking legal? You know, this guy's been, <laughs> this guy gets paid, what, $5 million a year for, by AT&T every, every week. And he acts like he's some iconoclast outsider. It's like, okay, yeah. you you just say the things that every fucking like dipshit. You're conservative that smokes weed. <laughs> conservative smokes weed, which otherwise not a libertarian. Um, and yeah, it's like, it's the same boilerplate reactionary politics he's been doing for years. Again, this is why when people say the anti-woke this or that is so indistinguishable in many ways from anti-labor. Like if you look at Ron DeSantis's like rants against woke culture, he's, he'll just go back and forth from talking about woke culture to unions and labor. Like he, they don't view their, them as being any difference. So this idea that like you can somehow separate these concepts, it's, it's the same old fucking gripe and pandering to power um in, in many kind of central ways so it, it follows that the guy who's obsessed with this idea of 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 you know dumping on any kind of quote-unquote woke culture is also going to be anti-labor it's it's very much in uh very much consistent i, I think with with his worldview um which has always been um i, I believe that they it's it's the it's the it's the, the the sweet spot of marketing it's kind of the the the, the like early 2000s pop punk where you want it to be um edgy but not subversive um you know you want to sort of appear like oh, mom and dad are the worst but there's no real political content and that's kind of bill maher he's edgy but not subversive which is to say he picks on sacred cow liberal sacred cows uh but not any that are have any real power and institutional power um and it's mostly just punching down or punching sideways tv's good charlotte <laughs> I don't want to name names. I, I, don't, I, know, I, know, I know what dem- I, the demographic here is. is you know, I, I could really step into it. So, I mean, I just the the absurd thing about these kind of claims, whether they come from Bill Maher or whoever else, I think his exact statement about this was like the things that people are asking for are just 
wacky. He was using some kind of word like it's just kooky. wacky or it's kooky. it's just like unreasonable kooky. Yeah. But of course, yeah, the idea of writers in Hollywood wanting to make a living wage for the work that they're doing is kooky. The idea of like the Netflix or Prime or Disney CEOs pulling in like 25, 30, 50 million dollars a year, whatever it is, not kooky. These people who do nothing and contribute nothing and create nothing and are really have, are not even barely part of the process. Not kooky at all for them to take home these absolutely astronomical salaries, but yeah, wanting to get paid basically for doing work, your work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, he's a boss. He's a producer on the show. He's a boss. So he's every incentive. So, I mean, the other, other producers like, you know, are smart enough to understand, especially those that came up the ranks as writers, are smart enough to understand that you don't want to go to war against your writing staff. Um, but he, I think he has too much of an ideological commitment to discipline the underlings who he views as being recalcitrant we don't want to keep you too much longer we really really appreciate you joining us uh we've been looking forward to this for a while uh where can people follow you and find more of your work i'm on twitter which i refuse to call x it's like sears tower i'm always going to call sears tower adam johnson chi and then i'm i'm on i have a Substack called the column that's kind of where i write when i write uh for real news and i'm actually going to start writing for the lever actually this week so wonderful i'm doing a column for them so cool thank you so much for for joining us all right, y'all. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Thanks, Adam.